0: K107 News.
1: Talk about an exciting offer Right now at Peter Vardy MG The brand new MG ZS Excite Comes with rear parking sensors Smartphone integration and Bluetooth connection For just £239 initial rental Then only £239 a month That's right Just £239 a month For a brand new MG ZS Excite Not only that You'll also get up to 7 years
2: warranty Visit Peter Vardy MG now to find out more
3: Peter Vardy
1: 48 months personal contract hire Conditions apply
3: from the
2: prom to Pathhead. This is K107 FM
4: Welcome to this special half-term edition of The Week in Hollywood I'm Charles Fletcher. One year ago Scottish politics was thrown into turmoil. A state of chaos emerged as the longest-serving First Minister of Scotland unexpectedly resigned from office. Only two weeks earlier, Nicola Sturgeon denied an affinity with the Prime Minister of New Zealand. In Auckland, Jacinda Ardern said she was quitting because she no longer had enough in the tank to keep going. Nicola Sturgeon said she still had plenty in the tank. Then this happened.
3: Today I am announcing my intention to step down as First Minister and leader of my party.
4: And suddenly, everything has changed. (laughs) Scotland's longest serving First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, stands down. In her head and her heart, she says the time is right to go. That we will steer the SNP on its next course towards independence. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Hollywood.
3: In my head and in my heart, I know that time is now. That it is right for me, for my party,
4: and for the country. Scotland's longest-serving First Minister has announced it's time for her to step down. After almost 20 years in the two most powerful jobs in the country, Nicola Sturgeon will return to the back benches of the Scottish Parliament. She'll be there until at least the next Holyrood election. Beyond then, she cannot say. But first, this from my colleague Kieran Jenkins at Channel 4 News.
5: Nicola Sturgeon is resigning as First Minister. But why? First of all, she's been First Minister for more than eight years. She's seen five UK Prime Ministers in that time and had extraordinary electoral success. Under her leadership, the SNP has been something of an election-winning machine. In the past few months, things have been a bit more difficult. The UK government has blocked a second independence referendum. It's also blocked a law on gender recognition reform in Scotland. And Nicola Sturgeon has been right at the heart of a row over transgender prisoners here. She says it's nothing to do with all that. It's longer term. She wakes up in the morning and feels that she can't deliver on those issues that matter so much to her, not least independence. But where does it leave that movement that she's so central to? She says she's going to carry on until a new SNP leader and first minister is elected. It's not clear who that will be. But for Nicola Sturgeon right now, she's going to enjoy life a bit more, spend some time with her friends and family.
4: So where were you when you first heard the news? Where was I? I'd just stepped onto a train at Strasbourg, heading for Paris. I'd been preparing a special edition of the weekend holiday at the European Parliament, but not this special edition. The TGV service just started pulling out of the station when I had the first private message telling me something was imminent back in Edinburgh. A moment later, another message prompting a call, and from that conversation, a seismic political story began to unfold. By the time my train was pulling into Paris, I was watching live coverage from Bute House, the First Minister's official residence in Edinburgh. As I stepped towards a concourse of Charles de Gaulle Airport, Nicola Sturgeon was on the staircase and stepping towards a podium to confirm what we by then knew.
3: Being First Minister of Scotland is, in my admittedly biased opinion, the very best job in the world. It is a privilege beyond measure, one that has sustained and inspired me in good times and through the toughest hours of my toughest days. I am proud to stand here as the first female and longest serving incumbent of this office and I'm very proud of what has been achieved in the years I've been in Butte House. However, since my very first moments in the job, I have believed that part of serving well would be to know, almost instinctively, when the time is right to make way for someone else. And when that time came, to have the courage to do so, even if to many across the country and in my party, it might feel too soon. In my head and in my heart, I know that time is now. That it is right for me, for my party and for the country. And so today I am announcing my intention to step down as First Minister and leader of my party. I have asked the National Secretary of the SNP to begin the process of electing a new party leader and I will remain in office until my successor is elected. I know there will be some across the country who feel upset by this decision and by the fact I am taking it now. Of course, for balance, there will be others who will, uh, how should I put this, cope with the news just fine. Such is the beauty of democracy. But to those who do feel shocked, disappointed, perhaps even a bit angry with me, please know that while hard, and being no doubt, this is really hard for me, my decision comes from a place of duty and of love, tough love perhaps, but love nevertheless For my party and above all for the country. Let me set out as best as I can my reasons. First, though I know it will be tempting to see it as such, this decision is not a reaction to short term pressures. Of course, there are difficult issues confronting the government just now, but when is that ever not the case? I have spent almost three decades in frontline politics, a decade and a half on the top or second top rung of government. When it comes to navigating choppy waters, resolving seemingly intractable issues, or soldiering on when walking away would be the simpler option, I have plenty of experience to draw on. So if this was just a question of my ability or my resilience to get through the latest period of pressure, I wouldn't be standing here today. But it's not This decision comes from a deeper and longer term assessment. I know it might seem sudden, but I have been wrestling with it, albeit with oscillating levels of intensity, for some weeks. Essentially, I've been trying to answer two questions Is carrying on right for me? And more importantly, is me carrying on right for the country, for my party? and for the independence cause I have devoted my life to. I understand why some will automatically answer yes to that second question, but in truth I have been having to work harder in recent times to convince myself that the answer to either of them when examined deeply is yes, and I've reached the difficult conclusion that it's not. The questions are inextricably linked, but let me try I've been First Minister for over eight years and I was Deputy First Minister for the the best part of eight years before that. These jobs are a privilege but they are also rightly hard and especially in the case of First Minister, relentlessly so. Now to be clear, I'm not expecting violins here but I am a human being as well as a politician. When I entered government in 2007, my niece and youngest nephew were babies, just months old. As I stepped down, they are about to celebrate their 17th birthdays. Now that I think about it, that's exactly the age to be horrified at the thought of your auntie suddenly having more time for you. My point is this, giving absolutely everything of yourself to this job is the only way to do it. The country deserves nothing less. But in truth, that can only be done by anyone for so long. For me, it is now in danger of becoming too long. A First Minister is never off duty, particularly in this day and age, there is virtually no privacy. Even ordinary stuff that most people take for granted, like going for a coffee with friends or for a walk on your own, becomes very difficult. And the nature and form of modern political discourse means that there is a much greater intensity, dare I say it, brutality, to life as a politician than in years gone by. All in all, and actually for a long time without it being apparent, it takes its toll on you and on those around you. And if that is true in the best of times, it has been more so in recent years. Leading this country through the COVID pandemic is by far the toughest thing I've done. It may well be the toughest thing I ever do. I certainly hope so. Now, by no stretch of the imagination was my job the hardest in the country during that time. But the weight of responsibility was immense. And it's only very recently, I think, that I've started to comprehend, let alone process, the physical and mental impact of it on me. So what I'm really saying is this. If the only question was, can I battle on for another few months, then the answer is yes, of course I can. But if the question is, can I give this job everything it demands and deserves for another year, let alone for the remainder of this parliamentary term? Give it every ounce of energy that it needs in the way that I have strived to do every day for the past eight years? The answer, honestly, is different. And as that is my conclusion, hard though it has been for me to reach it, then given the nature and scale of the challenges the country faces, I have a duty to say so now. I feel that duty first and foremost to our country to ensure that it has the energy of leadership that it needs, not just today, but through the years that remain of this parliamentary term. And right now, in a very particular sense, I feel that duty to my party too. We are at a critical moment The blocking of a referendum as the accepted constitutional route to independence is a democratic outrage, but it puts the onus on us to decide how Scottish democracy will be protected and to ensure that the will of the Scottish people prevails.
4: Nicola Sturgeon, the great communicator, had checked the time, and hers was up. Nicola Sturgeon's announcement on Wednesday took everyone by surprise. Only those closest to her knew it was coming. When you read it was expected, it wasn't. It may have been wished for in some quarters, that's clear. Nicola Sturgeon dreams of independence, but she's achieved that for herself, not her country. From Glasgow's south side, Tom Parmenter of Sky News meets people in her parliamentary constituency.
2: Nothing stays still. But the south side of Glasgow has become very used to Nicola Sturgeon even if they don't all agree with her.
6: She's done a great job um, taking on the Tories. Um, nobody else was as formidable as her. And she outshone all her opponents for the past eight years, outshone
2: them all. What do you think her legacy will be? Is Coming, mean, she's the longest... serving. Failure. A failure. Mm-hmm. Yep. NHS is a mess. Schools, education.
3: I think she did all right through COVID. I think she did her best. Um, but it just feels like that was her peak. And it's all just kind of to
5: a little
2: bit down from there. Nicola Sturgeon says she wants a more normal life, but will still represent Glasgow Southside and fight her political battles from here, including, of course, the SNP's push for independence.
4: Hi guys, welcome to the Future
2: Opinion polls still have Scotland split down the middle. At Imran's restaurant, he sees the current First Minister as integral to independence.
4: I feel as if with her departing like this it's going to crumble Why? I think purely because she was the backbone to this pro-referendum, pro-independence, you know and um, now with her departure it's all going to come down crumbling
2: Evening drinks at the bell jar Malcolm helps run the yes campaign in this part of the city
7: What it does is Uh, Introduce a degree of uncertainty in how things will be in the short term. I mean, uh, I think Nicola's gone on her
4: own. Now with her departure, it's all going to come down crumbling. Evening
2: drinks at the bell jar. Malcolm helps run the Yes campaign in this part of the city.
7: What it does is uh, introduce a degree of uncertainty in how things will be in the short term. I mean, uh, I think Nicola's gone on her own terms um, and uh, she she feels that she's a divisive figure for people who don't want independence and therefore uh, maybe it will open the door to more people coming over to independence. uh, Time will tell.
2: In the city centre, those who said no to independence held a brief street party. The First Minister has to somehow represent and serve everyone. After eight years on this ride, it's time for someone else. Tom Parmenter, Sky News, Glasgow.
4: You're listening to The Week in Holyrood with Charles Fletcher. Let's recap on the story that captured well beyond Scotland's shores this week. Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland's longest-serving First Minister, is stepping down. From ITN, Carl Dinnan reports.
7: Scotland's first female First Minister, one of its best political communicators, one of its most polarising politicians. Good morning. Today, Nicola Sturgeon said part of serving well is knowing when to go.
3: In my head and in my heart, I know that time is now, that it is right for me, for my party and for the country. And so today I am announcing my intention to step down as First Minister... leader of my party.
7: The last few weeks have been bruising for Nicola Sturgeon. A row over gender self-declaration turned nasty when rapist Isla Bryson was temporarily sent to a women's prison. But...
3: This decision is not a reaction to short-term pressures. Of course there are difficult issues confronting the government just now, but when is that ever not the case?
7: She said the deeper issue was that she no longer had the energy perhaps even the appetite for the job.
3: I'm not expecting violins here, but I am a human being as well as a politician. A first minister is never off duty, particularly in this day and age, there is virtually no privacy. Even ordinary stuff that most people take for granted, like going for a coffee with friends or for a walk in your own, becomes very difficult.
7: In particular, her leadership through the pandemic had exacted a price.
3: By no stretch of the imagination was my job the hardest in the country during that time. But the weight of responsibility was immense. And it's only very recently, I think, that I've started to comprehend, let alone process, the physical and mental impact of it on me.
7: But the political outlook is challenging. The SNP has a big decision to make about how to argue for another independence referendum, And Sturgeon says she's not too divisive a figure to make that case.
3: My judgment now uh, is that a new leader will be better able to do this. Someone about whom the mind of almost everyone in the country is not already made up for better or worse. Too often I see issues presented and as a result viewed not on their own merits, but through the prism of what I think and what people think about me.
7: Although her political opponents tried to sound magnanimous today, they didn't all manage it.
1: Well, let me first start by paying tribute to Nicola Sturgeon for her long-standing public service. and I wish her well in the future. Now, obviously, Nicola and I didn't agree on everything.
8: Look, despite my many disagreements uh, with Nicola Sturgeon, despite my many arguments, uh, I think that record in that time of service is worthy of respect and worthy of thanks.
1: On a a personal level, we we never really got on uh, particularly well, uh, and I'm not going to uh, ignore that at the time when I think there have been issues that she could have and should have focused on.
7: She was worried that too much reflection might lead to tears today, but, as ever, she kept it together.
3: To all of the people of Scotland, whether you voted for me or not, please know that being your first minister has been the privilege of my life. Nothing, absolutely nothing I do in future will ever come anywhere close.
7: On one level, eight years in office looks like political success. But as Nicola Sturgeon waved from the upstairs window of Bute House today, the dream of Scottish independence looked no closer than when she first arrived.
9: And Carl's outside Holyrood now. Carl, Nicola Sturgeon spoke, didn't she, about the brutality of politics, but she said recent events hadn't forced her resignation. So why do you think she chose now?
7: Well, Mary, I don't think we can discount the cumulative effect of eight years in office, uh, giving 100%, as Nicola Sturgeon put it, leading a country uh, and, and facing... Uh, the sort of brutality and uh, and the polarized political atmosphere that she says uh, she has endured. However, I think we can't either completely discount the row over the Gender Recognition Act because although she termed it a short-term pressure, it has had effects which may be longer lasting. It has damaged her popularity, the standing of her party, and it has even apparently damaged support For Scottish independence. Uh, And when you put all that together with the uh, conference that the SNP is coming up, where they have to decide their next steps. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon says she wants the next general election to be a de facto referendum on independence. Not everyone thinks that's the right way to move forward. When you put all those things together, uh, this was a moment where the SNP faced a a fork in the road, if you like, and I think Nicola Sturgeon recognised that. Uh, I don't think, uh, however, that anybody was expecting today's announcement, and in those terms, at least Nicola Sturgeon uh, has decided to go on her own terms.
4: Nicola Sturgeon is going at a time of her own choosing. Not many politicians at her level get to make that choice. And, of course, everyone always has an opinion about her, from the nation's mammy to the nippy-sweetie. Nicola Sturgeon bears it all. And everyone who knows stuff knew she was about to quit last summer, and the summer before that too. So, possibly hoping to secure a scoop, I jumped on that bandwagon and I asked her directly, in the Christmas edition of The Week in Holyrood in December 2021, if she was about to step down. I made a bit of laughter... She said no. This year, uh, apart from anything oh, else, there's been a wee bit of mischief going on with some reports uh, stating, not even just suggesting, but stating that you're about to step down and go and join the United Nations or some other... Fancy I think it, might be, news, it, it <laughs> might be
3: news to the United Nations uh, as well as news to me.
4: <laughs> well, that's the point here. Can we have the exclusive? Um, you're not about to do that. No,
3: I, I'm not. Look, I, I'll I'll explain how that came about in a minute, Uh, and it it possibly is just an illustration of how everything I say and I accept it comes with a job is is over-interpreted, but I'm not intending to stand down. I mean, it might seem a long, long time ago, but it is for only eight months uh, since I won an election, overwhelmingly won an election with a historically high share of the vote, having said to people, put your trust in me as First Minister to lead the country through and out of COVID, so you know, the idea that I would suddenly turn my back on that um, is just for the birds. I I take the responsibility of being first minister really seriously. I've been elected to do a job and I intend to do that job. But what came about is I was doing another interview um, and I was asked the question, have you thought about what you might do when you leave politics? And I prefaced my answer by saying, well, of course, I'm not planning to leave politics soon. But then I gave some thoughts about what I might like to do when I leave politics. And that was just snapped up as well. That must mean she's planning to step down. And I've kind of thought a bit about that since. What? How could I have answered that question to avoid that sort of reaction? And the only thing I could have done was very robot-like, almost refuse to countenance the fact that there would ever be a time when I wasn't in politics. Now, you know, I'm only 51, uh, even if I stay for a fair bit longer, I'll still be relatively young when I, So I think it's a human thing to think, what might I do in the future? And I actually think it's it's not just a human thing. I think it's a, an important thing to, to answer questions like a human being and not like a robot. So that's how it all came about. But um, I'm not sure whether it will cheer up your listeners or depress them. Probably a bit of both uh, to say that I'm not planning to go anywhere soon.
4: Politics change but never stop. It affects everything we do. I'm Charles Fletcher with The Week in Holyrood. Join me here for coverage of the Scottish, UK and European parliaments. It's a crucial election year where you once again have a choice. Who's in, who's out. The ups, the downs. Join me, Charles Fletcher, bringing Holyrood home. You're listening to the half-term edition of The Week in Holyrood with Charles Fletcher. Council leaders are calling for an urgent meeting with the First Minister over his policy of a council tax freeze. Scotland's local authorities say they can't afford the policy and they're now in a fundamental dispute with the Scottish Government. They're warning the First Minister relationships are breaking down over that and education. Labour's Deputy Leader Jackie Bailey says the council tax freeze is a burden and cannot go ahead, as announced by Hamza Youssef at the SNP conference last autumn. The SNP is calling for a new vote on a ceasefire in the Israeli-Gaza war when the Commons returns from recess. It comes as there's a reported surge in anti-Semitism by the Community Security Trust, which monitors anti-Jewish abuse and attacks in the UK. The Labour Party is in conference in Glasgow this weekend, The party meets as a new opinion poll puts them in prime position for a landslide victory at the general election. The survey of 18,000 people by MRP forecasts Rishi Sunak will be left with just 80 MPs. That would be the party's worst result in history. Under this poll, the SNP will take 40 seats in Scotland, that's down 8. Labour goes up from 1 at the last election to 13 and the Conservatives would have none. Now return to questions to the First Minister ahead of recess last week. The Health Secretary had just resigned moments before it started. The curtains came up on what was to be a fiery session. Coming up, Anassawar for Labour but first Conservative leader Douglas Ross.
1: Michael Matheson has finally resigned as Health Secretary. Months after it emerged that he was dishonest and misled Parliament over an eleven thousand pound iPad bill he charged to taxpayers. Hamza Youssef described Michael Matheson as a man of integrity and honesty. How much does he now regret those words?
0: First Minister. In relation uh, to Michael Matheson, the question of substance Douglas Ross uh, has asked. Michael Matheson, of course, uh, did make a mistake. Uh, He made that mistake, and he apologised for that mistake. Uh, What he did ask for... Uh, was due process and I think somebody who served this parliament, served his country, served in the government not for years actually, served in this parliament uh, for decades that he should be afforded that uh, due process. Uh, that due process as, it has, as it's coming to its conclusion, Michael has come uh, to the conclusion himself uh, that he should stand down and of course have accepted his resignation. I do think though that uh, the Conservatives talking about integrity in public life will be quite galling for those that are listening. Presiding Officer, Can I remind Douglas Ross that he, of course, called Boris, Jonas, Boris Johnson an honest man. That would be the Boris Johnson who lied about partygate. That would be the Conservatives, of course, who awarded multi-million pound contracts, PPE contracts, to their pals. So if there is one party in this chamber presiding officer that has no credibility in talking about integrity in public life. It is the Conservatives. Douglas
9: Ross.
1: As clear as day, not a bit of regret from the First Minister <laughs> for claiming that Michael Matheson was a man of integrity and honesty. And he says... The the former Health Secretary came to this decision after the due process. He says in his own two-page letter that he's not received the findings of the review. However, he thinks it's in his own best interest and the best interest of the SNP government that he resigns. If he's so keen on due process, why not wait for the report uh, to be published? But let's be clear. Michael Matheson was dishonest about his £11,000 iPad bill. He made a false claim for thousands of pounds of taxpayers' money. He misled the public, the press, and this parliament. He kept on being dishonest even as his story changed. He's resigned. But Hamza Youssef should have sacked him the minute, the minute it became clear that Michael Matheson had not told the truth. And again, in this lengthy letter from the former Health Secretary, there is not one word of apology to the people of Scotland for what he did and his dishonesty. And I hope the First Minister will stand up and apologise on his behalf. But can I ask Hamza Youssef? Why did he continue to have this disgraced minister in his government for months after the situation first came to light?
9: Uh, first, first Minister, before you begin, I will just remind the Chamber that the investigation process, a confidential process, is still ongoing. First Minister.
0: Well, as I said, Michael Matheson, and as he reiterated in his letter, as the process is coming to a conclusion, uh, he has uh, offered his resignation I have accepted uh, his resignation. Can I remind uh, Douglas Ross when it comes to mistakes that are made Douglas Ross of course forgot to declare tens of thousands of pounds of income that he he, of course just simply forgot to do uh, so mistakes uh, can uh, happen. Presenting officer, I don't think I was asking for Douglas Ross's resignation at that point because we understand uh, mistakes absolutely uh, can happen and
9: Douglas Ross says that Michael Matheson did First not Minister down. That First is incorrect. Minister. Can we please have quiet so that we can all hear questions and responses, First Minister?
0: That, that, that is uh, incorrect. If Douglas Ross wants to look at the Mr. official record... Ross! Records,
9: First Minister.
0: Douglas Ross may not want to listen to what I've got to say, but of course he can read over the official record in this chamber when Michael Matheson made a personal statement. He reiterated his apology uh, on numerous occasions for the mistake he had made. And he did make a mistake. I'm not suggesting he did not. All I'm suggesting is that, of course, a man who has served this Parliament for many years, decades, in fact, has worked diligently, worked hard in every role that he has been in, was afforded due process. He has been afforded that due process and come to the conclusion that he should stand down. In terms of what he has helped to achieve, of course, is he has helped to achieve a recovery of our NHS. That process, of course, ongoing. But under Michael Matheson, under this government, we are focused on the recovery of the NHS. And that includes, of course, record funding Briefly for first our Minister. NHS. That includes record funding for our NHS, which is a very stark contrast to a Conservative government that is imposing
1: real-term cuts on the NHS in England. Douglas Ross Michael Matheson tried to cheat the taxpayer out of tens of thousands of pounds he has been backed every step of the way by Hamza Youssef and he's still being backed by the first minister even when the health secretary's story changed Hamza Youssef was still there defending him. He stood by him even when Michael Matheson had to cancel appearances at GP surgeries and stop doing his job to avoid scrutiny. He let him continue to be Health Secretary while Michael Matheson was distracted and was a distraction. The First Minister was just about the only person who still supported Michael Matheson. Hamza Youssef staked his own personal reputation on backing the former Health Secretary. So can he tell us why was he willing to tolerate such dishonesty? First Minister. Let me uh, again uh, just remind uh, Douglas Ross what
0: we have been focused on. Let's look at the facts. Let's look at the recovery of the NHS. We have, of course, in Scotland, the best-performing A&E departments in the entire UK. A real terms uplift for the NHS in Scotland while the Tories inflict a real terms cut to the NHS NHS England to the tune of over £1 billion. Record staffing in NHS Scotland under the SNP up by over 31,000. The best paid staff anywhere in the UK, NHS staff best paid in Scotland compared to the rest of the UK. Outpatients who've been waiting over two years have, se- have reduced by almost 70%. Inpatients who've been waiting over two years reduced by First over Minister. 25%. They don't want to hear it, presiding officer, because it points First to an NHS Minister.
9: recovery. I remind all members of the atmosphere that we wish to have at this session. We want members to be able to put questions and to respond in an orderly manner and we wish to be able to hear one another.
0: And of course, uh, unlike where the Tories are in charge, Scotland hasn't lost a single day of NHS activity to strike action. Including, of course, including, of course, The junior doctor's deal that Michael Matheson concluded. So we're a government that takes great pride in supporting our NHS at at its time of greatest need. In very stark contrast to a Tory government that is gutting NHS England to the bones. Douglas
1: Ross. (laughs) Listening to that answer, it's like Hamza Youssef doesn't realise his disgraced former health secretary resigned this morning. It's incredible. But Hamza Youssef said the £11,000 claim was a legitimate parliamentary expense. The First Minister claimed months ago that the matter was closed. There was nothing more to see here. He told me in this chamber last year he had absolute and full confidence in Michael Matheson. He said Michael Matheson was a man of integrity and honesty. Hamza Youssef backed him to the hilt. But most of Scotland has known from the very beginning that Michael Matheson was dishonest. Hamza Youssef's own reputation is in tatters over the scandal. He looks weak. Now, trust in this government is gone. The SNP's credibility is gone. Michael Matheson is gone. But Hamza Youssef, the human shield, is still here defending him. First Minister, how can anyone trust a single word this SNP government ever says again?
9: First Minister Well,
0: well, well, Presiding Officer, Douglas Ross wants to talk about trust. Did he not see the Ipsos Pori yesterday that showed that we First the Minister, SNP First is Minister, trusted
9: First Minister We are simply not going to be conducting our business in this manner. I'd ask the front benches in particular to set the best of examples. First Minister. Well, they don't want
0: to listen to the facts, presiding officer, and the facts show that the SNP still continues to be trusted by the people of Scotland over the NHS, over the economy, over transport, over health, and and, and in stark contrast uh, to the Conservatives. How dare Douglas Ross stand here and talk about standards in public life? in the week where his leader, the Prime Minister...
7: First Minister!
9: Literally... Mr Ross, you have put your questions. The First Minister is now responding. Let us do one another the courtesy. We may not always agree with what we are hearing, but we are simply not going to shout at one another, are we? First Minister. And how
0: dare Douglas Ross stand up in this Parliament, in this chamber, in this week of all weeks, and talk about standards in public life when his leader, the Prime Minister, quite literally gambled with the lives of the most vulnerable this week. This week, just yesterday, quite literally decided to punch down on one of the most marginalized communities in the entire country. And not just on any day, of course, on the day that Brianna Gay's mother was in the House yeah. of Commons. Yeah. That is a disgrace. Yeah. That is shameful. So I'll certainly not be taking any lectures whatsoever from the Conservatives on standards and integrity Absolutely. in public Absolutely. life. Yeah. Question number two, Anna
9: Sarwar.
8: Thank you, President officer. After months of Hamza Youssef battling to keep Michael Matheson in his job, today the health secretary has finally resigned. Now, that will make the headlines today, but the crisis in our NHS has been 17 years in the making. So Hamza Youssef may hope swapping one failing SNP minister for another is going to solve the problems, but it won't. So I want to ask about the real-life consequences of this government's failure. So while the government pretends there is no crisis and they have it all under control, that is not the experience for patients across the country. For many, delays in accessing treatment can be fatal. So can the First Minister tell the Chamber how many people called an ambulance last year but died before they could reach an accident and emergency department?
0: First Minister. Well, I don't have that figure in front of me. What I can say is, of course, as part of the winter funding that we announced, a significant chunk of that winter funding was to recruit additional staff for the Scottish Ambulance Service. I take real exception to Anna Sauer's characterisation and his question that nobody in the government understands the real challenges the NHS is under. We do. In fact, uh, we, of course, uh, are the ones who brought forward uh, a recovery plan that's helping the NHS to recover. That's why we've seen... No, that's why we've seen Anasawa uh, staying up. That's why we've seen, for example, a reduction on those outpatients who are waiting the longest two years or more uh, in terms of uh, uh, long waits. That has reduced by almost 70%. In terms of inpatients, those are waiting over two years reduction by over 20%. 5%. there's not a single person on the front benches uh, here who doesn't understand the significant challenge that the NHS is under and that's why we're ensuring additional resources to the ambulance service but also I'm happy order, uh, to, to write to Anna Sarwar the details of what we're doing to tackle far too long ambulance waiting times that are taking place across
8: the country Anna Sarwar also that. answer proves how much Hamza Yusuf has his head in the sand he talks about a recovery plan waiting lists have gone up since he published his recovering plan, and over 800,000 of our fellow Scots are on an NHS waiting list while he dithers around looking for a decent stat in his book. He needs to wake up to the reality facing far too many Scots. Now, the answer to the question I asked was there were over 12,000 people last year for whom an ambulance was called but who died before reaching the hospital. That is up from just over 7,100 in 2019, an increase of over 70% in just four years. Many of these people may have survived if an ambulance could have reached them sooner or they could have been admitted to hospital more quickly. That is the real world consequence of SNP incompetence and a failure to get to grip with a crisis in our NHS. But here's another example. Back when Hamza Youssef was health secretary, the government promised to contact all 150,000 women who were wrongly excluded from cervical screening by August 2021. More than two and a half years later, 65,000 women are still waiting to have their cases reviewed. They're still waiting to hear if they're at risk. Why has the government failed these women?
9: First Minister, Let me
0: take a couple of the important issues that Anasarwar uh, does raise. Of course, again, Anasarwar does this when he uh, rightly of course, interrogates the issues around the health service he uh, talks about the last four years without of course paying any recognition that something quite significant happened in the last yeah. four years there was a global pandemic which was the biggest shock that the nhs is facing its 75 year five-year existence that is why nhs services in labour-run wales and conservative-run england and smp-run scotland are all facing really significant challenge ...because of that global pandemic. So Anasawa can't simply say, well, things have uh, uh, deteriorated in four years... ...without, of course, giving any level of context... Uh, whatsoever. Anna Sauer says they should have got better. They should have got better in the midst of a global pandemic, uh, is quite uh, uh, quite something, Presiding Officer. In terms of the waiting lists and, uh, that, that we currently have, and there's no uh, suggestion from me uh, of anything other than having to focus in on reducing uh, those uh, waiting uh, times. Uh, if I look at, for example, the throughput, if I look at the operations uh, that have been performed in the last year, there was an 11% increase in the number of performed operations compared to the previous 12 months, and a 15% increase, over 15% increase, if you went back 12 months before uh, that. And there are waiting times. No, no doubt there's too many people waiting uh, in uh, Scotland, and we're working to try to reduce that number uh, where uh, we can. In terms of the women uh, in rel- that may have been affected uh, by uh, the issues around uh, cervical cancer uh, screening, uh, it should be said, and I can give us our more detail, Uh, of course, uh, in writing, that, uh, of course, having done an initial audit uh, NHS uh, boards uh, reached out to those women who were esteemed to be most at risk and, of course, have written out, have taken the appropriate action uh, where uh, necessary. I'm more than happy to write to Anna Sauer uh, with further details, but I think suggesting uh, that they are at risk or or, or at high risk uh, would be incorrect. So there has been a focus on the women that were impacted, uh, that clinicians believe, we're at the highest risk of cervical cancer.
9: Anna Sarwar.
8: Yeah. officer, I'm, I'm honestly gobsmacked by how outrageous the answer is from the First Minister there. He said there's no evidence that these women are at higher risk. I mean, it's why their cases are being reviewed. And actually, three women have died whilst waiting for this review, and 65,000 women still haven't been processed in that review. I think he should seriously look at what's actually happening in the National Health Service he is presiding over because the reality is that these women and too many people who need an NHS are being failed by an incompetent SNP government. The result? a delays get worse, waiting lists grow, staff burn out and patients' lives are put at risk. Now, this government would rather deny its incompetence than face up to the problem. Their financial mismanagement is further risking frontline NHS services and they would rather continue with a culture of secrecy than learn the lessons of their failures. So, whoever... This week, First Minister chooses to be the next Health Secretary. Isn't it the case that it's not just a change of a Health Secretary we need, it's a change from this failing, incompetent SNP government? First Minister.
0: Uh, officer, uh, let me... Uh,
8: Anna uh, completely, of course,
0: mischaracterised uh, what I said. I said the review of cervical exclusions, he knows, and I'm, and I'm happy to provide him with more detail on this if he doesn't, uh, had two parts to it. The initial review of 1,500 uh, records, which was completed in 2021, and then a much wider review of all exclusions from the programme that is very much uh, ongoing, and that's covering around 150,000 uh, individuals. I'm more than happy to provide uh, Anna Sauer, uh, with the full details of the progress uh, that uh, is being made. And what I would say to Anna Sauer is, of course, under this government stewardship of the NHS, we've seen record staffing in the NHS. We have the best paid staff anywhere in the UK. We haven't lost a single day's strike compared to Labour-run Wales, compared to Conservative-run England. We are making a dent into, of course, those longest waits in terms of uh, those who have been impacted by the global pandemic. What doesn't help our recovery is, of course, those devastating cuts to the budget, from the Conservatives. What would be really helpful is if Anna Sauer was able to confirm, of course, that UK Labour, if yeah. they do form the next, Labour, the next UK ones. government, would reverse those Tory cuts. Yeah. In fact, yeah. what we've had from Labour, what we've had from Keir Starmer, what we've had from Rachel Reeves is, uh, is, is, is an absolute confirmation that they will not reverse Tory yeah. spending cuts. Yeah. So while we Briefly, face First headwinds Minister. of austerity from the Conservative government, I'm afraid it doesn't look like the situation will change under a UK Labour
10: government. Yeah.
4: As the session ended, I asked the leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats, Alex Coe Hamilton, for his reaction.
10: Well, it's clear that Michael Matheson had lost the confidence of the people of Scotland, as he had done the health service that he was meant to be in charge of. But it's clear that the SNP's focus had drifted away from the health service long, long before Michael Matheson had ever gone on holiday. Um, under him, under Humza Yusuf before him, even under Nicola Sturgeon when she was health secretary, the NHS has known only crisis with some of the longest waits in its history for treatment, people struggling to get an appointment um, for a GP or a dentist on the day they need it. So this was a crisis a long time in the making. We don't just need a new health secretary, we need a change of government.
4: This departure, would you say it was inevitable? Because it certainly seems to have come across as a a long painful process that's brought us to where we expected to be.
10: Well I think so and I think it's um, probably we'll look back on this in the moment that his fate was sealed was when it was clear that he'd actually uh, been uh, untruthful to the national media when he told them uh, one thing and then it transpired later in his admission and his apology to parliament um, that it was something completely different. I think that undermines confidence in the media. When you lose that, you also, by extension, lose the confidence of the people. And it was clear he could not focus on the day job. And those critical um, warning lights blinking across the dashboard of his ministry, um, in terms of you know the massive crisis we have in mental health, the two years that children are waiting for mental health support, um, the ages that people are waiting for routine elective surgery, all of this, all of this on his watch, and clearly he didn't have the bandwidth to deal with it.
4: On the front page of Holyrood uh, magazine, uh, the latest edition, it has a caricature of Hamza Yusuf, the first minister, saying Ogiza brek. two ministers gone this week. Does it leave a question of judgment over the first minister?
10: I think that um, a lot of these uh, problems, um, the seeds for which were sown a long, long time ago, I mean, you know, I think the biggest scandal that the SNP have had to contend with in recent days was actually the Nicola Sturgeon testimony to the COVID inquiry and the reality that we're still reeling from, that she and despite promising the bereaved families of the pandemic and Channel 4 News and the uh, Scottish Parliament itself that she would retain in full all of her private messages around that, she never had any intention of so doing, was deleting them routinely. And now at the time of asking, um, those families are thwarted in terms of their quest for answers. I mean, these are all problems that kind of predate Humza Youssef's tenure in office. But no, it's clear that he's having a bit of a nightmare. Um, I think it's actually you know, probably more than he's cut out for. Um, And it just underscores that the SNP aren't focused on the priorities and issues that matter to the people of Scotland.
4: In November last year, the then Health Secretary, Michael Matheson, came to the chamber to explain and apologise. He admitted his son's watching football on his parliamentary iPad during a holiday in Morocco was the cause of an £11,000 data roaming charge.
6: The responsibility for the iPad is mine. The responsibility for the data usage is mine. That is why my wife and I made the immediate decision to reimburse the Parliament the full cost. I contacted parliamentary authorities the next day. I contacted parliamentary authorities the next day to make clear arrangements to reimburse the full cost of the roaming charges and issue a personal statement to explain the decision. In my statement issued last Friday, I made no reference to the use of data by my family. As a parent, I wanted to protect my family from being part what to do. I am a father first and foremost. I can see now that it's just not possible to explain the data usage without explaining their role. Officer, the simple truth is they were watching football matches. On Tuesday, I told the First Minister that members of my family had made use of the iPad data, and yesterday evening I provided him with a full account of the matter and of my intention to inform Parliament. Officer, disclosing this information about my family has been extremely difficult. Mistakes have been made by me and by my family.
4: The first minister has announced his choice to be the new health secretary. It's Neil Gray, who was an aide to the former health secretary Alex Neil. Mr Gray is close to the first minister. He was formerly cabinet secretary for the well-being economy, fair work and energy. At PMQs, Labour leader Keir Starmer called the Prime Minister shameful after making a comment that was meant to be humorous but backfired across the Chamber, Whitehall and all over the country.
2: But it's a bit rich, Mr Speaker, to hear about
1: promises from someone who's broken every single promise he was elected on. I think I counted almost 30 in the last year: pensions, planning, peerages, public sector pay, tuition fees, childcare, second referendums, defining a woman. Although, although in fairness, that was only 99% of a U-turn. The, the list goes on, but the theme is the same, Mr. Speaker: it's empty words, broken promises, and absolutely no plan. Yeah.
7: Of all of all the work, of all the weeks to say that, when Brianna's mother is in
10: this chamber. Shame.
4: And so it was. A year ago, Nicola Sturgeon resigned, and the leadership battle for the SNP drew tight between Kate Forbes and Hamza Youssef. Just over half of the SNP members who polled voted for Hamza Youssef. Kate Forbes declined to serve in his first cabinet. She wasn't considered for his second cabinet, which he announced last week. I suggested to the First Minister, the past year has been eventful.
0: Look, I think being First Minister uh, is a job that, uh, because you are the leader of the country, means that every single day there is issues that you've got to try to deal with. There are sometimes um, issues you've got to react to that are out out of your control, and they're always the hard ones uh, that, that, that you don't have control over. And then there's the focus on that which you are in control of, and that's the job of government in particular. We are in control of how we choose to spend our money, what policies we choose to bring forward. And that which is out with our control, we've got to do our best to make sure we don't get distracted by it. And that's been uh, part of my ethos to say to the team, focus on that which we are in control of, and the rest sorts itself out.
4: There was an area and a time where you were not in control and something that was immensely private to you, you brought into the public um, domain. And that was when your family uh, was trapped in Gaza, a huge, uh, troubling time for you. How did you feel about making that such a, a public knowledge?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, from a personal perspective, I don't think there's been a lower moment. We were talking previously about you know, professional laws, but as a, from a personal perspective, I have to say the four weeks that my in-laws were in Gaza probably been amongst the most difficult four weeks um, of my life, let alone Nadia's life, let alone their lives. And, and, and it was difficult. There was no way we were never not going to be able to make that public. Um, you know, we, we didn't talk about it for a few days, given the real concern that we had about getting the family out. And if we were to speak about it, any repercussions of what I said, being felt by the family in Gaza. And, of course, Nadia continues to have family there. Her brother's still there. Her grand's still there. Her nieces and nephews are still there. Her cousin's still there. Um, You know, it it was extremely difficult, both trying to be a supportive husband, trying to be a really supportive son-in-law, doing my best to see if I could get my in-laws out, and at the same time, being the First Minister who's got a responsibility to a whole country who's really feeling uh, grief over what was happening not just in Gaza but of course what had happened in Israel on the 7th of October and and and, and not just from the Jewish community but they particularly felt it but of course from communities that felt uh, the grief of that entire situation so trying to also show moral leadership uh, at that point um yeah all, all of that pressure on, on my shoulders and amongst the time when it was my first party conference and um other sorts of things. Uh, yeah, it was a tricky, tricky period.
4: And now they're home, and now they're safe, and are they well?
0: So they're home, they're safe, but they're really traumatised. I mean, I think it's hard for me to describe just how dramatic that four weeks was for them, for my mother-in-law in particular. So if you imagine from their perspective, they've seen the horrors of war. They've seen bodies blown apart. They've seen children killed. They've seen the elderly killed. They've seen hospitals targeted. They've seen refugee camps blown to pieces. So they've seen all that. They've witnessed it, not not somewhat distant from it uh, or, or a news report, but they've seen it with their own eyes. And they come back here and they cannot understand how the world has not put a stop to it. They just cannot, they, they can't comprehend it. And they're obviously speaking to the family every day. Uh, a brother-in-law, uh, as, you, as you probably know, is a doctor in one of the hospitals in Gaza, um, sees indescribable scenes of uh, horror every day. So they are home, they are safe, and that's the most important thing. But they are severely traumatised, and I don't think they'll be able to get over that trauma particularly easy, easily. I think, um, in my lifetime anyway, I've never seen this level of death or destruction, and the word ceasefire being um, really a controversial word, sort of phenomenal when you think about it, never in my time have the calling of stopping and ceasing hostilities with over 7,000 children dead, has that ever been a, a difficult call to make? But for some it continues, including, I'm afraid, the UK government, including, of course, the leader of the opposition. Of clearly, including also, of course, the United States. And I think those positions um, I can't comprehend, nor, frankly, could I justify.
4: And that's the week in Holyrood at half term from Caledonia Media. I'm Charles Fletcher. Parliament is currently in recess. Members return here and to Westminster on Tuesday. Join me again next time at the same time or on Soundcloud or replay. Love the show, Steve. I keep back.